From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way. And here we go. We start each podcast off with a little bit of IU Maurer Law School trivia and history. Did you know that our first woman graduate graduated in 1892? It was Tamar Alto Schultz. She graduated with a class of 16 men and was admitted to the bar at the age of 21 and became the first woman to practice law in Vandenberg County. In 1914, uh, she was the founding director of the Women's Rotary in Evansville, the first women's rotary in the United States. Today, I get to speak with Heidi Goebel, a 1997 graduate of our law school, where she graduated Order of the Barristers and was a member of the Sherman Minton Moot Court Executive Board, a member of Delta Theta Phi, where she led the annual all-school softball tournament, and a member of the Law and Film Society. She was also a finalist in the ATLA trial competition and a volunteer for the Protective Order Project. At graduation, Heidi was awarded the Outstanding Contribution to Student Life Award. She is a long-serving member of the law school's alumni board. She also is noted for founding a mentoring program for law students at the University of Utah, a program she helped run for five years from 2008 to 2013. Heidi is the founder and the managing partner of Goebel Anderson in Salt Lake City, Utah. It is the only certified women-majority-owned, operated, and controlled law firm in the state of Utah. In 2017, it was certified by the Women's Business Enterprise National Council. She also serves as a senior director of the Board of Directors for the Federation of Defense and Corporate Counsel and has been a longtime member of the Defense Research Institute, including presenting as an expert on depositions and deposition strategy. This year, she was named by Utah Business Magazine as 30 Women to Watch honoree. Multiple years, she's been named one of the top 100 attorneys and one of the top 50 women attorneys for the Mountain States, and she's been listed as one of the best lawyers in America. She was inducted into the Litigation Council of America and Best Lawyers and has consistently been recognized as Utah's, quote, legal elite by Utah Business Magazine. Uh, welcome, Heidi. So great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for making time. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start with basics. You earned your undergraduate degree at IU Bloomington and you earned your law degree at IU Bloomington at the Maurer School of Law. How did you get out to Salt Lake City and what was that experience like? Well, I've been practicing in Indianapolis for a few years, and I went to go visit my best friend from undergrad who was living in Colorado, and she was dating a ski instructor who was really good friends with another ski instructor who ended up being my husband. So I moved west, and there is uh, far more skiing here in Salt Lake City. We have 10 world-class resorts within an hour of downtown Salt Lake, so that was a little more palatable than uh, the Midwest for my, my spouse. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you're a skier, you just can't get better than that, that area, can you? They say we have the greatest snow on earth, and I believe it, so. Well, that's got to have been quite a bit of a cultural change. So how, how was it like moving from practicing in, in Indiana to starting to practice in Salt Lake City? It was a little unnerving. Um, we did not know a single human being in the state of Utah. Um, in fact, when my spouse asked me about moving out here, he said, what do you think about Salt Lake City? And my response was, I don't think about it ever. Um, and so when we got here, people were telling me I was going to have a really hard time for a number of reasons. Um, Salt Lake City and Utah in general has a very high LDS population, and that's it's a very close-knit community. 
And folks told me that I was going to have a hard time with that. There are also fewer female attorneys here, I think, than most states. Um, and, and people said, you're just going to have a hard time finding business. It turned out to be the best move I could have made career-wise. It was actually much easier for me to develop business out here because I was unique. Um, and I'd have people contact me specifically because they needed a female litigator or specifically because they wanted somebody who wasn't as involved with the community here. Um, and I'd already had kind of a national practice anyway. I'd been speaking and doing things with national bars. So most of my clients are not in state, um, but I've got folks that do a lot of work here and they've just been really great loyal clients and it's been a really wonderful opportunity. I tell everybody all the time, you know, embrace your differences. They are really your strengths. And for me, that's definitely been true out here. Well, you've had an inspiring career and you're the founder and managing partner of your own firm. Can you little, talk a little bit about that? Uh, when was the firm fa founded? What sort of work does it focus on? And um, I guess how have things developed over time? So we started the first day of January in 2016. So we're into our sixth year here. It's been such a great experience. Um, we are a civil litigation boutique, and that's all we do, except we have one guy who kind of goes rogue and does some criminal defense work. Um, hopefully he doesn't get hit by a bus because the rest of us don't know how to do that. Um, but it's, uh, we have started with three lawyers, uh, you know, card tables and passing a cell phone back and forth. And now we are a real firm with hopefully our most recent person finds out he passes past the bar here in the next week. So we'll be a full time dozen lawyers and then one of counsel person. Um, and it was just a really, it was so much easier to start the firm than I thought it was going to be. Uh, it did help. I had been in management at my old firm, so I kind of knew a lot about how the sausage was made behind the scenes, but just, just exciting. And I just have the greatest group of people. Everybody works together to try to solve problems and kind of has that common goal to make the firm a place where you want to work. Um, I remember those first couple months, like, you know, you'd be excited someday, be like, woo, we have a stapler. All right. We've crossed a new boundary. And, um, and, and now we're, we're more like a, you know, a real firm, but those first first few months were kind of just really fun to see what we could make work. Well, and 12 attorneys is getting fairly large, actually, compared to when you look at the national statistics. I think I think there's something like 60% of those in private practice are in firms between zero and five people. So that's, uh, how, how does that compare in the Salt Lake market for size? Yeah, we're, I think, officially mid-size now. Um, Westlaw likes to charge me like I'm mid-size, so I guess that means I'm mid-sized. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good. And I don't know how big I want to get right now. Everyone at the firm, we all get along, um, very different personalities and eccentricities, but everybody gets the whole mindset of we put the client first, we put their goals first, and then we figure out how to make it work. Um, and I don't know where that point in time goes, you know, at, at some point you have so many people, not everyone can get along. And I don't know what that number is. We're not there yet. I think by the time you get to 25, somebody's not going to like somebody else, but where that sweet spot is, I don't know. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. 
Well, look, I mentioned at the start that your firm is certified by the Women's Business Enterprise National Council. And um, I think I saw that the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms lists your firm as the only majority woman or certified majority, uh, majority woman-owned law firm in the state. What, what's the significance of that? Uh, what does that mean to your practice? And uh, you know, I, I, partly it's, you know, I, I, I was just reading a study about diversity in the legal profession and, uh, you know, I reported that in Utah, less than 12% of Utah law firms are, have women partners. That's really low compared to the national uh, rate. And, um, you know, it's very small increment from where it was even a decade ago. So um, I, I'd be interested in you talking a little bit about how you situate into those, into that broader conversation about diversity in the profession. Yeah, the ability to join NAMWOLF was one of the main reasons I decided to go out and start a firm. Um, so, and NAMWOLF is the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms, but since that takes 45 seconds to say, you just go with NAMWOLF. Um, but NAMWOLF is committed to hiring attorneys that are diverse. And, and as you said, Utah is a place where diversity is harder to come by than many other states. Um, a lot of Fortune 500 companies actually have a certain percentage of their legal spend they need to uh, direct towards minority or women-owned law firms. And they have, so the NAMWF conferences are, are directed towards these folks who are looking for opportunities to increase their diversity platform. Um, in order to be a member, you have to be certified either by the minority bar um, National Corporation or WeBank, which is what we are, which is the Women-Owned Business um, National Corporation. That process, if you think getting approved to join the bar was a challenge, the WeBank certification process just dwarfs that. Um, and they really, really make sure that it's not a sham, that in fact, the, the women or minority individuals are the ones who are running the firms and making the decisions. Um, for me, I think it has been less that we've gotten new business from being part of NAMWF and part of being certified, but it is really helpful for some of our existing clients when they go back to their supervisors or their boards or their shareholders and they can point out, look, we've got diversity in a place where there's not a lot of diversity and, and it's really great. Yeah, I'm surprised actually that more, more firms haven't started, like I think probably good news for you, but that more firms haven't, uh, more women haven't started their own law firms in, in Salt Lake City or Utah for precisely that reason. Because um, you've, as you said, you've been doing this for six years and you're still, still the only one, only game in town, right? There are a couple other firms that are, are small firms, like two or three lawyers that I think are all female attorneys. In order to be part of NAMWOLF, you have to have at least three full-time attorneys. And then the certification process is really challenging. So I think the certification part's harder. I don't know if you get the same benefits without that certification. Um, but, just have, but I know there's a, there's a group of a couple uh, appellate lawyers and maybe one other firm that I know of that is primarily female. Um, but, you know, starting a business is scary. And, um, you know, for me, it just made sense. It was the right time. I was pretty confident that my clients would come with me. I mean, some of them had actually asked me to start my own firm. So either it was a very long con to get rid of me instead of just telling me they didn't want to do my work anymore, or it's pretty sure they'd come with. Um, but, the other thing is the freedom that you get from starting your own firm. Um, 
for me, the struggle I had all along was finding really good lawyers who are also really good human beings. And a lot of times I'd work with these really amazing attorneys who were horrible people or the reverse, nicest person in the world, couldn't put a brief together to save their life type of thing. And, and that's been my focus is, you know, I want good lawyers who are even better people. And it's a pervasive culture in the firm. Um, you know, we have a very strong no jerks policy. The worst thing you can do here is be unkind to someone below you on the chain. Um, and it just, it makes everything more pleasant, particularly in litigation. I mean, you're, you're fighting outside all the time and eliminating those challenges within the office has been just really freeing. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've got to ask when you were in law school and you were about to step out, did you think you would open up your own firm at some point or? No, no, no <laughs> never. Um, it's funny because people say, oh, well, you know, you've always wanted to have your name on the door. I'm like, I actually didn't want to have my name on the door. And um, we started just maybe two years, I think, before people started naming their firms non-named partner names. You know, now we've got, you know, whatever they're called here. I'm trying to think of, there's a couple that are kind of funny out here that I'm like, that's the name you picked. But um, had that had that trend been in place, I might have actually just picked a different name before. Um, but now that I've done it, I can't, I have a hard time imagine, imagining going back. You know, we've had a couple larger regional firms kind of approach us about purchasing them. Like, I don't think I can do it. I, I don't think I can go back to someone else's regime at this stage. You know, we're seeing a resurgence of, uh, of interest in students actually starting up their own firms pretty early on after they graduate, in part because of the, uh, the legal desert problem. And so in the small small county seats in Indiana, we're seeing people that are retiring that have a large book of business. They've got a good practice that's fairly localized and they can't find uh, young talented attorneys to take it over. So uh, the law school started our rural justice initiative a few years ago. And that was actually designed for people to get a sense of what it's like to practice in a slightly smaller town. I, I think it's it's harder to start off from day one in a, in a really large city, but uh, but starting your own practice in a, in, a, in a county seat isn't impossible. And there's a lot of interest from the state in having students starting thinking about that more so than let's say 10 years ago. That's, that's fantastic to hear. And it's, if you've got the ability to get the work flowing to you, you know, even if it's like a year or two that you're kind of working under the other person, I think that's a great way to go. Well, you're busy not only with your own firm, but also you're doing a ton of stuff outside the firm. So you're senior director and a member of the board of directors for the Federation of Defense and Corporate Counsel. What is that organization? And, and it sounds like you've been involved with it for a long time. And, and uh, I think I read correctly that you're even chairing the annual meeting this year. Um, did I get it? So can you tell, tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about what that is and how it plays into your law practice? Yeah, Um like most national bars, they shorten themselves to the alphabet soup of their letters. So we call it the FDCC. Um, but it is all in-house counsel um, or folks that are adjusters with insurance companies and then people who primarily do either commercial litigation or defense work, civil defense work. Uh, you have to be in practice for at least eight years before you're eligible. The vetting process is extensive. You have to have three judges speak on your behalf, three opposing counsels speak on your behalf, and then they send out letters to virtually everyone in the defense bar uh, to get in. And um, 
and it's another organization I just feel really fortunate to be a part of. You know, I, if I were to start a national firm, I would go to this group and recruit people from there. Um, and for me, it's it's been huge. Um, I had a lot of speaking opportunities, and because there are so many in-house counsel there, that really got a lot of work um, sent our way. Um, probably the thing that I'm most proud of that our firm has done. So, you know, we were tiny at the time, like we were six lawyers. Um, we were one of the firms that did a lot of the pelvic mesh litigation, which if you have a television, I'm sure you've seen an ad somewhere, but there were 30,000 cases filed nationwide against our manufacturer. And they started out with about, I don't know, 80 firms that were handling it. And by the end, they kept paring it down and paring it down. And we were down to one of 14 firms. Um, and it was us and huge firms. And I was just really excited that even as a little firm, we could provide work product that was the same level that they were getting from these larger firms. And that was a connection I made through the FDCC. Their general counsel happened to hear me speak and, you know, hunted me down at a cocktail reception afterwards and gave me a chance. And, um, you know, obviously like most things, it was, you know, one little project first and let's see if you can do it. And it was just kind of a, a turning point in my career. Um, and I, I can't say enough great things about that organization. So I've, I've been on the board now, this will be my sixth year, which means um, at the end of this year, I either have to run for president or roll off the board. So that's a, that's a big decision that I've got to make. And who knows, you know, how that would turn out if I, if I actually run, but um, so maybe, maybe I'll keep, keep being involved. Who knows? <laughs> How did you uh, how did you get connected in the first place? Like how what what brought FDCC to your sort of uh, your radar screen? Like most things in my life, it's a little bit random fate and a lot of mentoring. Um, I had been at a DRI meeting, um, sitting in a panel council meeting, and I don't know if you've ever sat through one of those. They're not riveting. You you sit there for two hours listening to the insurance person kind of go over their guidelines and um, and I just happened to be sitting next to this gentleman who was probably 20 years older than me. And he looked at my tag and he said, Oh, you're from Utah. I'm in Idaho. And, you know, apparently that makes us the same person. Um, and he said, when this is done, there's a cocktail reception for this FDCC. Why don't you just come with me? And, um, that's how I got introduced to it. It was not on my radar at all. Um, I always thought, you know, a lot of people that do DRI, they go into the IADC as the other more senior organization. And I always thought I was going to do that. And it just kind of routed me and it was the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, it just, it's really worked out well. You know, I talk to alums all the time and there's always a little bit of, a bit of luck of being in the right place at the right time, but also putting yourself in a position to have those sort of opportunities. And grabbing it when it happens too. You know, it, there's a, all that stuff goes in there and some sort of magical stew. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Well, you know, maybe taking that and also sort of what we were talking earlier about with your firm, if one of our graduates was thinking of starting their own firm or thinking about sort of how they're launching their careers, do you have specific recommendations for them and as how they might do it or what things they might be thinking about? Um, your number one thing you need to uh, have is your tech. I mean, get your tech in place. And it's more important now than it has ever been before. Um, you need to have your cybersecurity in place because you're dealing with 
sensitive information for your clients. And um, there are a lot of resources out there. I mean, just start Googling. There are a lot of great vendors. Um, but if you're going to spend money, that's where you should spend your money. You spend it on that. You spend it on your people um, and getting the right people in place. Your actual location, I didn't think it meant made much difference when we started six years ago and even more so now with people being remote. Um, so those are my, my two big things is you've got to be able to do that so that you can provide the services that they need. And then from there, you need to figure out what it is that is your special sauce for your firm. Like, why are you different than other firms? Um, you know, we talked about this before, but for me, it's, you're never going to have to deal as a client with my internal turmoil here. When you give us something, we're able to focus on you, focus on what you need. And that's, that's what we do for you. And um, you got to get buy-in on that from your people too. I mean, one person not on the same page, particularly when you're a little firm can kind of upset the apple cart. And that's been hard for me. Um, I have three good friends I practiced law with in, in Indianapolis and, and we're still friends to this day and I've been gone for 20 years, but there's the mean one, the funny one and the nice one. I'm, I'm the nice one. Um, and so the hardest part for me is the um, HR issues. You know, when things aren't working the way they need to, that's the hardest part for me, but it's also the most important part to get right. And I think one thing that I've learned that's been really hard is knowing when you just can't fix the problem. You know, so, so much mentoring, you can't get that person on the same page as you. Um, and sometimes it's kinder to cut that person loose than it is for us all to struggle through together. I've, I've heard that from quite a few people who own their firms about the HR issues being, being so the least enjoyable part of the job. Hands down, <laughs> not, not a doubt. I, your your remarks also inspire me. I should be thinking about whether deaning can be done on the slopes of uh, slopes of the mountains or or in or in Hawaii. Actually, it's uh, the, the 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 temptation of remote access has really sort of I think opened up possibilities for lawyers in ways that didn't exist previously. Well, um, one of my really good friends who had stopped practicing for a few years because her children were younger when we started up, she actually was part of our firm from Indianapolis, not licensed in Utah. And she basically did ghost brief writing for us. And then, you know, we'd have our folks review it and, and put their names on it. And um, I never thought I'd have the chance to work with her again. And it was just a really great experience. And, and it worked well for her because she kind of got back into the legal market. And now she's back with another firm in Indianapolis. And it was perfect, but it was nice for her to be able to explain, you know, I had a 14 year hiatus here, but the last two years I've been doing this part time. And it was, Another thing that I was really happy to be able to do. Um, so. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, looking back over your career so far, is there a particular case or client matter that you're really proud of or something that kind of sticks out in your mind? Um, I had two. One was the, the mesh litigation that I was telling you about before. You know, there was one day, like the three of us filed 15 motions for summary judgment on the same day. So I think it ended up being something like 330 pages we got out. And I mean, we were a team working together. Uh, you know, obviously, we've been working on it for weeks coming up to it. But it just was one of those moments I was like, oh, we can do great things when we work together. This is fantastic. Uh, probably the other one 
was the most frightening piece of litigation that I ever had. It was a large uh, securities litigation dispute. And it was a case where my clients had told me from the start, we will never try this. This case is not going to be tried. And then six weeks before the trial, they drew a line in the sand and said, you know, <laughs> we're trying this thing. And uh, there were, they were asking for $30 million and um, my clients had made a number of mistakes that were going to be hard to, to get around. And it was one of those weird things where the win, um, you know, we knew we weren't going to win, right. But, but staving the losses off. And um, so the goal was to get below, below 4.5 million. And I was really concerned that was not going to happen. Um, and we managed to get under, and it was funny, one of my law partners, this time they were sending faxes, they, they sent the ruling via fax, um, but pulled it off the fax, not knowing anything about the case and went, oh my gosh, Heidi is going to go into a catatonic stupor. Like we serious, somebody needs to be with her. This thing's coming through. And uh, the associate that had tried the case with me was standing right there and, and ready. He's like, this is amazing. This is amazing. We only got hit for 4 million. And, and the other guy's like, what are you talking about? But um, you know, it was just, it was really high stakes, super stressful and, and got the result that was probably the right result in the end. Um, and that was really, really edifying. How long a trial was that? How, do you remember? It was two weeks. Um, That's a long trial. Yeah, it was. And, and um, I was trying to think of how, how far out it's been a while now. So I was probably only out about 13 years. And again, to have a company put that kind of faith in me for a case that big um, when I was, you know, kind of in the mid stage of my career was, was a big, um, big Rubicon for me to cross, I guess. No, that, that makes sense. It's, since I know both our ages, I'm going to say that you're still in your mid part of your career. So, but let's, <laughs> but let's thank you. I, yeah. I think we graduated the same year. So, I think that's right. I think that's right. The, yeah. uh, you know, I think that's such an important point, though, this idea of what a win is. And I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I think people who are not in, in the legal profession understand that sometimes that can be a major win, even when there's a, you know, even when you're liable, even when you're paying, it's difference between 30 million and 4 million. It's a lot of money. And, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't get it settled, you know, that those are your options. You either overpay in settlement or you roll the dice and see how you do. Yeah. yeah. Well, so um, if you're looking back at your time at Bloomington and, and the time you spent here, either undergraduate or, or at law school, are, are there experiences that sort of stand out for you? So for me, being in Bloomington is one of the three best year, a chunk of three best years of my entire life. Um and I mean, not that undergrad wasn't good, but, but law school was great for me. And then the reason why it was great was the people. Um, and uh, some of my closest friends to this day are people that I know from law school in Bloomington. And we just, you know, we spent so much time together and, and bonded together. I learned a lot about them, about, from them, from different viewpoints and motivation and, and all of that. And it's funny because we've all scattered across the U S and we are, none of us are in the same areas of law. It, it's funny. I mean, I really, I cannot tell you, you know, what, like, for example, Troy farmer does day to day. 
I don't know. I just know it is nothing that I do. Um, and it, it, it was just wonderful. And, and that's one of the things that I kind of uh, tell folks, you know, I, I've done a lot of mentoring over the years, um, which was also one of the things I learned at, at IU. I actually worked for one semester for uh, Professor Lambert running a mentoring program for the undergraduates. And for me, my mentors have made such a huge difference in my career. And it's um, one of those things where I feel a real strong need to pay it forward. And I tell people all the time, find people that you like and work with those people. That's more important than, you know, okay, I specifically want to do medical malpractice law. Well, maybe you do, but working with a really great person who can teach you how to practice law and teach you how to get along with other counsel and deal with these difficult situations that arise is far more valuable, I think, than getting that one little specialty area. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I talk to students quite a bit about that too. Uh, you know, there'll be different firms that, that students have heard about and, and they're all fabulous firms, but the day-to-day -day experience is going to depend who, who they're working with and who the partner they happen to be working for. And and who they've hopefully had taken under their wing to try to explain. And yeah, I have to say, when I was a young attorney, there was some matters that I would have thought, oh, I'm never going to enjoy that area of law. And it turned out to be really, really exciting. And there's um, there's other areas, which um, I remember when I first started, I, I had to do some, I did some entertainment work. And those were things that people lined up to do. And it was the most boring experience out of all, all the different things. It just happened to be that particular matter that we were working on. So. Mine is really very similar because I thought I wanted to do med mal and I got assigned to a guy who represented architects and engineers. I was like, oh my gosh. And the closest I got to med mal was we had a hospital that had some problems and I'm reading through this stuff and you know, this doctor's complaining because he really wanted the toilet in his private office to face north instead of east. And I'm rolling my eyes going, oh my gosh, this is the absolute worst. Um, but I just clicked with this partner and he has been just life-changing for me. You know, he taught, he taught me all of those things about how you interact with other counsel and how you interact with judges and those things that are really hard to learn unless you actually see it happening. And, um, because it was just fun working with him, all of a sudden I was interested as to, you know, how far over this wall was or, you know, whatever the, the issue was there. Um, and uh, I'm just, I'm grateful for it. And I'm, I'm glad that I didn't end up, you know, pushing my way to make sure I got into a med mal defense firm. I mean, I still, occasionally I get some cases um, for psychiatrists, which are always really super interesting. Um, and so I still get a little bit of med mal and I still think that's really interesting, but my career would not have been the same uh, had I pushed for that at the beginning. Oh, makes sense. Well, if you were to leave uh, leave students today with a recommendation, or either current law students or future law students, aside from mentoring, do you have some other sort of tidbit of advice you'd leave them with? That is my all all knowing number one. Um, so my other tidbit is, and this is hard for people to remember, but particularly if you're at a firm and it's your you're younger, remember that your client as an associate is the partner that gave you the work. And that's where it's coming from. And that's the person you really want to please and want to make happy. And I try to do everything the way I would want it done if, some, if I were the client. So if it were my case and this was a problem for me, how would I want the lawyer being focused and how would I want them 
you know, thinking about new solutions and being mindful or even proofreading. I mean, it's just all of it. And I think if you put yourself in that other person's shoes as to what you would want to receive on the other end, it just makes it easier for you to focus on getting a whole product that makes sense and something that's helpful. That's really good advice. Well, Heidi, it's so nice to be able to see you. And thanks for spending some time with us on uh, one more cold call. Um, uh, great to have you on, on the podcast. And uh, well, geez, it's been a while since we've been out to Salt Lake City. I think it was maybe two years ago we held our last uh, reception before pandemic. And I'm hoping we can start those up again uh, again soon. Definitely. You should do it in the winter and make a ski trip out of it. So. Yeah, I think I, the last time I went skiing, I think I almost killed myself. But I think it's that it's that mid-age range that we're talking about. So. It won't get you on a green slope. You'll be all right. No, that makes sense. Well, Heidi, thank you so much. Um, great to have you on the podcast. And thanks to our listeners for joining us too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Mauer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a thousand alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors, or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is One More Cold Call, an IU Mauer School of Law alumni podcast.